This week on Talking Point, we're talking about domestic violence. If you know someone who's being abused, what can you do? Can you destroy someone without ever laying a finger on them? And do we accept that men can be victims too? That's our talking point. And my first guest this morning is Erin Pitsy, who's widely recognised as setting up the first domestic violence shelter in the world. Erin, can you tell me how you came to set up the refuge centre? Well, it was by accident because actually I had joined, you had to pay £3.10 in 1969 to join the women's, what was then the women's liberation movement. And I kept seeing them standing on platforms saying that marriage was a dangerous place for women and children and that in future the new family unit would be women and fathers would be expunged and not needed. And I was married and with children like the rest of my group and we just thought this is not nothing to do with the real women's movement. As it turned out, it wasn't. So we went off and I found a little tiny two-up, two-down house where we got Hounslow Council to give it to us and we opened a community centre for mothers and children who were isolated with young children and we could bring our children with us and we could work within our community. And that's what I thought was the isolation of women that first drew me to the women's movement, but I never understood it to be men's fault. Mm. I understood it to be the way society was organised at the time when big families didn't exist. There was only nuclear families, really. So that was going very well. We were very happy. And then in walked Cathy, who was the first woman to come into the refuge, and she stood in front of me and took her jersey off. She was blue from the neck down to her waist. And uh, uh, I took her home that night. And then it was just by word of mouth. It spread. And virtually within a matter of weeks, the place was totally packed with women and children of which I realized, because I come from a violent family, my, both my mother and father were very dysfunctional, and they themselves had been abused as children. So I could see it as a generational family issue, and I knew that what I had to do, along with anybody else from that background, is to learn other strategies for survival, other than becoming extremely violent and abusive, if you are frustrated or upset. So for those first four years, that's what I was doing. And then became a big split when I realized that the same women that I was fighting in the women's movement were actually now throwing up refuges everywhere. And they were basically saying it wasn't a generational family violence problem. It was a problem of patriarchy, male domination of women and children, and that all men were potential rapists and batterers, which we in our refuge knew that not to be true because 62 of the first women that came in were as violent as the men they left. And they needed help. They needed counseling and they needed long-term therapeutic care, which is what we were doing. But you see, at that point, the Women's Liberation Movement were looking for funding and they were also looking for a just cause. And domestic violence, unfortunately, fell into their lap. And to this day, in England, it's nearly 300 million a year goes into refuges and nothing, nothing at all for men. Can we go back just a little bit to when you first got going? How did you get funding to start off with? And what was the political reaction at the time? Well, when- the two reactions were this. The first was a local reaction. The local vicar said I was a marriage wrecker. The local MP said I was after publicity. There wasn't a problem. I was making it a problem. And because from the very moment women started coming in, I would never turn anybody away, and neither would the women in, in the refuge. We couldn't get any, any funding. We did at one point get a donation of, of funding of 3000 
which is a lot of money in those days, mm. and we spent that on uh, our first male worker to come and work with the children because we felt that the children and the mothers felt that the children needed good, gentle, kind men in their lives. So you said that you came from this background of yeah. intergenerational violence. Mm. So why do you think you were able to overcome that and other well, women in a similar background aren't? Well, because one of the great things, if you, come, if you are a child of a very violent relationship, you don't know anything else. To you, that is normal. Mm. It isn't until something happens in your life and you see something completely different. Like at the age of nine, because my parents were in the foreign office and they were abroad a lot. The age of nine, I was left in charge of Miss Williams, who ran the holiday home for children whose parents were abroad. And she saved me. She was absolutely amazing. She was the first adult I ever respected. I wrote a memoir called Infernal Child. It was about my life as a child and what it does to that kind of violence does to children. And so when I saw women who were violent coming in, my heart went out to them because I understood what that kind of violence and abuse does to everyone, not just men. It's men, women and children, family. Now, I did hear you say once before that there were two different kinds of victims, you know, that mm. there were women that I think you described as innocent. Yes, y- that was, I had to make that decision very quickly because it was a big problem. Because what I could see happening is that women were coming in who were innocent victims of their partner's violence. And it's exactly the same for men. By accident, you get into an addictive, violent relationship and you don't know how to get out. And you need refuge, you need comfort, you need consoling, you need help. But what you don't need is long-term therapeutic care because you've come from a warm, loving family. You know what that is and you're able to mother. But if, like the mothers coming in, you have come from violence and a lot of sexual violence and abuse, you have to unlearn all sorts of patterns that you adopted as a child. I mean, my strategy for survival in my violent family was to be violent. But my sister's strategy was to what I call hibernate. She would actually close down when the screaming and the shouting and the fighting began. So different people have different ways of... But my problem was I, I wasted an awful lot of my childhood with my violent, noxious behavior because I didn't know any other pattern. And Miss Williams was the one in my life who first actually showed me a difference. And I loved her and I wanted to change for her. With whom were you violent? Everybody as a child. I mean, whether it was other children I was fighting or whatever, I was just, they couldn't keep me in schools. I kept getting thrown out for violent behaviour, fighting. And what would you say then in your own experience was the split between what we call the innocent victims and then those who are victims too, but came from this um, violent background? Yeah. So you have your innocent victim who can quite quickly get on her feet and take care of her kids and move on. But the difference with the women who were I call violence prone, they were suffering from generations of family violence, is that they needed therapeutic intervention. And what bothers me most, and still bothers me because it still happens, because there is my refuge was closed down and all my therapeutic work, the women who are in violent relationships or violent themselves, the answer is social workers have nowhere to put them. So they simply take them take the children away. And essentially, those women then replace the children and we repeat the cycle of violence and dysfunction. 
What advice would you give to people who suspect or know there's something going on? Maybe friends, you know, or babysitters or teachers? I think the most important thing is that for nearly 50 years, everybody's been brainwashed into thinking that it's only men who are abusive and violent to children. And that's not true. The numbers are actually equal in interpersonal violence. And what's Uh, the evidence for that, Aaron? There's actually international evidence. If anybody wants to look at www.honestribbon.org, you'll see all that. That's my website. All the evidence you need from researchers all over the world. And uh, we've known this for something like 10 years. The research has finally caught up. And the facts have always been that. It's just that such a long time, people have been told that it's women, all women are innocent victims of men's violence. So what, what you tend to do when you see an, an interaction you tend to think of the man as the violent person and not the woman. And, you know, the fact is it could be either of them. And in many cases, it's both. Like my parents, both. My mother never left my father. She could have left him at any time. She had private money. She had family in Canada who would certainly have taken care of us. But she didn't because she was addicted to him and the lifestyle that he gave her. Now, last year in the United Kingdom, a new crime was introduced called coercive control. Yeah. And this is the idea that you don't necessarily have to be violent with someone in order to abuse them. You can just gradually take over their lives, put them under surveillance, cut them off from their family and friends, control the money that they get, which is a very effective way of controlling people. Did you see much of that throughout your Oh, yes. Europe? I mean, that's all part of a violent relationship. But the only thing that worries me is I don't really, I think it's terribly dangerous because as what's happened anyway, the laws have been changed to such an extent that false allegations can be made by women and they have, this is the policy, a woman has to be believed. So this means that there's a huge amount of men going through our courts who are being accused of violence, rape or sexual abuse by completely innocent men and they remain anonymous for the rest of their lives. And they can also be financially compensated. So I'm just concerned because if a woman who is violence-prone has a row with her partner, all she has to do is to pick up the phone without any evidence at all and say, he's intimidating me, he's shouting at me, and that he'll be taken away. Yeah, but then it does happen for real, obviously. So... Of course it does between. But if you have a coercive partner... If he's very physically violent to you and you're afraid of your life, absolutely, of course, you need to call the police. But in this day and age, women are perfectly... If you make an, a, a choice of a violent man, let's say, you then are responsible for that choice. Now, if he's controlling you, if he's coercive, you actually... And this, this is the problem. See, many of the women who get into these relationships are coming from violent relationships themselves as children. It's an automatic understanding that if I'm looking at, at a man, there are signs that the man could be doing that would, would I would think is completely normal, whereas a person coming from a normal household would know to stay away, if that makes sense. Mm. And I'm just concerned because now the definition of domestic violence is so wide. I'm worried that the police are so busy getting involved in marital arguments that they don't have time to deal with the really dangerous violent people who are a threat to families and family life. 
Now, I'm a fan of The Archers, Mm. uh, which is the long-running daily drama on BBC Radio Mm. 4. It's been running for 60 years and it's normally a staid enough affair. It's usually about Mm. the crops and the machinery. They have the odd extramarital affair and there was a gay marriage and that. But in the last two years, Sean O'Connor, the editor from EastEnders, took over and they introduced a storyline in which the smooth, suave Rob Titchener married Helen Archer. Mm. And very slowly, gradually over two years, he began to control her, undermine her. He managed to cut her off from her family and friends until finally when she tried to leave him there was an altercation in which she stabbed him. We actually have a couple of clips. Oh, especially the dress. Yeah, I thought you'd like it. Yeah, much better than that tarty stuff you showed me last uh, week. Yes. <laughs> I mean, let's face it, darling, you're not exactly Kim Kardashian, are you? <laughs> your family really can't leave you alone, can they? What do you mean? Well, I had your mother bending my ear earlier. Can you believe she implied your anorexia had come back? Did she? Yeah, it's the last thing you need right now, that kind of stressful insinuation. <laughs> How could she think that? I don't know. I mean, as if. Look at the size of you, for heaven's sake. Yes, all right, Rob. I, I want to treat you like a queen. Buy you beautiful things. Rob, please. Make you beautiful meals. Rob, what are you doing? You're not going to throw it away. <laughs> Rob! I don't know why I bother. I, I, I really don't know why I bother. Are you surprised Henry won't hug you? You can't even give him a bath without hurting him. That was an accident. It's always an accident. Burning dinner was an accident. Yes, I told Crashing you. Crashing the car was an accident. No, but... You just go on and on, blaming everyone, but just... Rob! Mum, moving things. It, 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 it's me not caring enough. When it's the I pregnancy. Was... It's your hormones. It's the eating disorder. Please, I, I can't Rather help. I've a wife and mother for my child. Look what I ended Stop up with. Stop it, Rob. Don't. You're a wreck. It's amazing you were ever allowed to bring Henry into the world. You really want to leave? Rob, let go. All right. <laughs> I'll show you. You want to know how you can leave? Rob. You see this knife? <laughs> Take it! Come on, put it in your hand! Do what Greg did. End it all now. Go on, I dare you! Because you're nothing without me, Helen. Nothing! Why are you doing this? No one will even be that surprised. So go on! It's your choice. But it's the only way I am ever letting you go. You're a monster! Stop it! Stop Out! Back upstairs! Why is Mummy up? Henry! I'm warning you, do as you're told this second or I'll. Right, come here, you little. Ralph! Get your hands off him! Don't touch him! Sorry. Helen. Sorry. Put put, put the uh, knife down. Helen! Now, Aaron, that got huge. Uh, yeah, I remember. Yeah. I do, yeah. It was all over the UK press, a huge yep. thing on Twitter. What did you think of it all? I thought at that point, I understand later that they made more of an effort to understand Rob's reason why he was such a, well, he's a, he's a very violent, obnoxious, you know, everything we know about a violent person. Mm. And I've dealt with men who've killed women, but I've also dealt with women who've killed men. And my feeling here is that I would rather that instead of just the, it was Refuge and it was Women's Aid who did all the advising on this and they're gender feminists. 
And they've made Rob a sort of almost like a Victorian cartoon character of a violent man. One of the things listening to this is understanding as damaged as Rob was, he wouldn't have always been. One of the problems with violent relationships is they're very intense and passionate. And the man or the woman isn't always as awful as Rob is. There are moments when they're absolutely wonderful and exciting and friendly and kind. And that's why, why so many people stay in relationships, because they get bamboozled by the good times, the honeymoon periods, as I, as they, I call them. Mm. So I have a feeling that, yes, of course, she was in a terrible position. But as far as I'm concerned, I would like to have seen more psychology about why it happens, because there is a big difference, really, in how I see relationships and how the feminist movement, the gender feminists see it. And it sort of works out. There's a book called Sweet Freedom, which is talking about me. And it was in 1974 when I realized other refuges were happening. And as they say, she saw wife battering essentially as a psychological problem and claimed that certain kinds of women were violence prone and invited assault. To feminists, this is a dangerous nonsense. They saw domestic violence as an expression of the power that men wielded over women in a society where female dependence was built into the structure of everyday life. And that was the big split that happened. And even listening to the archers, I would have said or let the audience know if you come across a violent person, what you do realize very early on is most of them are absolutely terrified of their own behavior, let alone being frightened of everybody else. Because they can't control it. Yes, and they know they can't control it. And I, I can't tell you how many times you've seen a woman sobbing and sobbing for me because I was in the refuge. Because in this one particular case, she'd stabbed him to death. And he died screaming, why, why, why did you do this? Well, she did it because... He was going to leave her, but she just claimed domestic violence and he was going to attack her and she got off. So I just think it's all too one sided, that Archer story. Yeah. Afterwards, when the trial was going on, we got mm. introduced to his father, who mm. was clear was a really horrible, obnoxious bully mm. himself. You see, his mother was highly manipulative. Yeah. And encourages him all the way through. I'm more I'm far more worried. Because I, it's a tragedy when the father's violent. And when the mother's violent and dangerous, it's a catastrophe because she is the primary agent in the child's life. And she carries him. And, and you have to remember that when your fetus in the mother's womb not only shares the same wine or drink or cigarette, but also all the chemicals of rage and violence. So they are born damaged. So, Aaron, you'll be accused of victim blaming now. That's what people will say when they No, because, they're... you know, we're not, none of us, we can't keep sitting saying, you may, if you make a choice of a violent relationship, then you must take responsibility. As I've often said, in, this is in the refuge to women, I've often said, look, he is what he is. He's a violent man. But you keep going back to him. When do you take responsibility of why you're doing this? See, I think this idea all women are weak, feeble, incapable of taking action on their own behalf is, is rubbish, actually. And if you're financially dependent on him, you know, if you don't want to have to involve your family, his family, the shame, do you not see point, it could be you have hard? To, if good mothers and fathers prioritize their children and get out. And you, for men, there's nothing. But for women, there is, they can ring the police. The police will see that they get into a refuge. If not, 
they'll see that they get accommodation somewhere and social services will get involved. You can then have welfare benefits. There are now enormous ways out. Certainly there wasn't in the beginning. There wasn't anything. In fact, women were sent back because social services said you've got a perfectly good husband or partner. He wants you back. No, you can't have any welfare. But we changed all that. Okay, Aaron, I think I will leave it there. Thank you so much for your insights and we really appreciate your time. Thank you. And just on the archers, Paul Truman was a guy who set up a Save Helen fund for the archers and during the airing of the episodes, he raised over £170,000 for refuge and a lot of people donated the money and left messages on the donation site. And I'll just read some of them. One said, from another Helen who survived with my sons, my abuser is now serving 13 years for nine counts of rape. Be brave and strong and beautiful. Stand up and walk. Thank you, women's aid. Another said, from my friend who walked out barefoot at night, carrying her newborn and leaving her four-year-old in the house. The first driver to stop threw up when he saw her face. She and her children are now free. And for you, Mum, although you escaped, the scars ran too deep. I realise now why you drank so much. I'm so sorry for blaming you when you were the victim. You needed help, but no one was there for you. And now I'm talking to Katie Dawson. She's a barrister specialising in family law. Katie, you were listening there to my interview with Erin Pitsey, who was really the founder of the very first domestic violence refuge centre in the world. Yes. Um, her views were controversial back then in the 70s, and they still are. Her argument that not all, but many victims of domestic violence come from violent homes from intergenerational experience of violence and can themselves be prone to violence and aren't able to take that step to leave a violent partner because it's part of what they know. And we'll get on to the legal stuff in a minute. But based on your experience, what do you think of her argument? Um, I think I'm probably one of those gender feminists that she's very she's very critical of. I think some of what she says has merit. I think certainly I can see situations where clients of mine would have had experienced violence in their childhood and would then go on to repeat that pattern in terms of interpersonal relationships they have as an adult. So, yes, I do think there can be a situation where people who have grown up experiencing violence can themselves get into a violent relationship. However, I think it's very difficult to explain the complexity of a relationship like that because in terms of clients and what they have told me and what they have outlined to me, there can be a great deal of control in a relationship and it can be very, very difficult for somebody in a relationship like that to extricate themselves if they have children, if they have an economic dependency on the person, if they've been isolated from family, if they've been isolated from friends. And I suppose what I've also experienced is that when somebody decides to leave and when they come to court and look for orders, that can often be a very dangerous moment for that person. So you often... And actually, we were talking about the archers to Erin... And the moment when it did get violent, because it hadn't really been violent in the relationship between Rob and Helen, was when she said she was leaving. That's when it got violent. Yes, that can often be a very dangerous point when somebody makes a a decision to leave a controlling relationship. So I think there has to be an understanding 
of, I suppose, the courage it can take to get out of a relationship like that. Because you may have to leave your family home, you may end up in a refuge, you may end up having to come to court. And that can be a very difficult process for a lot of people. They may have to confront somebody that they have been in a abusive relationship with. They may find themselves being cross-examined by lawyers. They find themselves talking about the most intimate details of their life in front of a judge and wondering, will they be believed? So you know, the process of extricating yourself from a violent and controlling relationship can be a very emotionally difficult one. Do you see class differences? You know, so again, one of the aspects of the Archer storyline was that Helen was middle class. And in a way that contributed to her inability to explain to anybody what was happening because that sort of thing didn't happen to nice middle class women. And she was educated and she didn't understand how to explain what was happening to her. What's your experience of class in the system? Well, I suppose I have had clients from all different backgrounds and all different economic backgrounds that have found themselves having to come to court and look for domestic violence orders. A lot of people from different backgrounds, now how they perhaps go about getting the domestic violence orders perhaps may be different. I think certainly if you have money, you're able to get lawyers, you're able to get a solicitor, barrister, you can have access to excellent legal advice and you can engage in the court process that way. If you are from an economically disadvantaged situation, you know, accessing the courts can be very difficult for you. Certainly you can go to the district court and look for an order and anybody can do that. I think anyone who wants to have legal representation should be able to have legal representation. But if somebody looking for an order like that, for example, would have to have €130 if they wanted to get a legal aid certificate and get access to a lawyer. Now, for people who are on social welfare or people who have very limited means, trying to find €130, particularly Mm. in an urgent situation, is virtually impossible. And probably particularly as well, where in many of these controlling relationships, the first thing the abusing partner does is control the money. Absolutely. Mm. So... And then if you find yourself in a situation where you are coming into the court process without having legal advice, without having an understanding of how the court process works, without having an understanding even of the kinds of court orders you can seek, it can be incredibly difficult and intimidating. And what I can see happening is when I represent clients and you go through their history is that they may have been to this court before two times, three times, four times and not gone ahead with applications because they they just weren't able to go ahead with the application or they were intimidated by the fact that the perpetrator might have legal representation. So, yeah, I think having access to legal representation and being able to afford Mm. to have that legal representation, you know, that's a big difference in in whether you'll you'll follow through. It must be depressing if you see people coming back when you can see from their legal history that maybe they have sought orders 10 years ago and they're still in the relationship, still trying to get out of it, but still going back. Well, I suppose, you know, as a lawyer, I try to just represent my clients as best as I can. And I don't profess to be any sort of relationship expert. But 
Yes, you know, it is a pattern in domestic violence cases. There are two main kinds of court orders that one can get. One is a safety order and the other is a barring order. And there are temporary orders you can get. So the first step will often be to come to the court just yourself. The alleged perpetrator isn't isn't involved. You come in in an emergency situation. You ask a judge for a protection order, which is a temporary safety order or a temporary barring order, an interim barring order. And what will often, and I suppose I can explain about those in yeah, more detail later, but what will often happen is that somebody will go and they will make that application in front of a judge and they will get that order. But when it, the matter comes back for a full hearing, when the alleged perpetrator is going to attend court, they will not proceed with that, either because he or she will have talked to them and promised them that things will improve or things will get better, or they themselves decide they don't want to go ahead with it, or they are intimidated by the court process, they're intimidated by Mm. the prospect of being cross-examined by a solicitor or a barrister. So absolutely, you will find, and I routinely find situations where people will have taken some steps in terms of the court process and then not followed through on it. And what do you see about this gender issue, about the proportion of male victims to female victims? Well, I represent men and women who come to court looking for a safety order, which is an order that somebody wouldn't use violence or threaten to use violence, molest or put you in fear. And that's an order which people can get when they're cohabiting, when they have co-parent a child and it's not an order that removes somebody from their family home or anything like that but it's an order that's there to protect somebody who is afraid that they might experience violence or experience so of violence. So there hasn't been violence but there's a threat of it. No there often has been okay. violence but I suppose the key test in terms of getting a safety order is that you have a fear of violence or, you know, intimidation. So that's the test, but it's not something that removes the other party from the family home. And I would have women that would be seeking safety orders. I would often have men that would be seeking safety orders as well. So what does it do if it doesn't remove the other person from the home? What does it do? Well, what it does is, in some respects, a judge has made a finding and granted you an order that says that you require protection. And you can lodge that safety order with your local Garda station. And if an incident arises, the Garda can arrest the person on foot of that and they can charge them with a criminal offence. So in a lot of circumstances, a safety order is a very effective deterrent. If somebody is in fear that somebody is going to use violence against them and they have a safety order, very often in a situation like that, they're protected because there is a possibility of being charged with a criminal offence if you breach the safety order and that can operate as an effective deterrent. What evidence is required for that to get one? Well, I suppose it depends because, you know, every case is different and every judge is different. But generally speaking, evidence of there having been physical abuse, emotional abuse, psychological abuse. And there will often be a situation where somebody will come to court and they will say there was an incident, there was an altercation that took place and there was physical violence. And as a result of that, I called the Gardaí, they advised me to come to court Mm. and I am in fear that this could happen again. Is there a danger that could be used maliciously? 
there is often a concern and it's not a completely unfounded concern that in situations where there were marital breakdowns, people will come in a situation where they just feel they can't live together anymore. They may come and seek a safety order or a barring order as a means of getting the other person out of the family home. And I cannot say that every person that comes Mm. to seek a safety order or a barring order, Mm. you know, that they are on merit. There will be situations where people will come and seek to get a safety order or a barring order because of a marital breakdown. And there will be situations where both parties will come and seek safety orders against each Mm. other. So yes, that can happen. But that's where, in terms of the court proceedings, the judge has to be satisfied that the threshold is met. And if it's a situation where all that's really set out to a judge is a situation of marital breakdown and there being marital difficulties and the party saying, Mm. look, we really want to separate, that won't generally result in in a judge granting a safety order. So this campaign being run by Cusk is about what would you do? And it's, you know, saying things like you're a witness, not a bystander. In these cases... Do witnesses come forward? Are there friends or family members who would back up a victim's complaint? Well, certainly. These are, first of all, they're in-camera proceedings, so they're in private. So generally speaking, the only people in court are the applicant and the respondent, the judge and any lawyers that are there. Yes, you can call witnesses if the judge is satisfied to hear from them. And certainly I would have cases particularly at the higher end of the scale where somebody's looking for a barring order. That's an order where you are asking a judge to remove someone from their own family home, not allow them to return. It is a very serious order to be made. It's not an order made lightly by judges. There really has to be a threshold in terms of a previous history of violence. But in cases like that, I will often have a situation where a Garda who has attended the house after an incident of violence where a report was made would attend court where a social worker might attend court, where a doctor might attend court to give medical evidence. So certainly there are situations where there would be additional witnesses. But they're all professionals you've listed. Yes. Do you see family members or friends? Yes. But more rarely. Yes, it is more rare. Yes. And what I sometimes see, and it's a really difficult situation when I find it because I, I... I sometimes see a situation where a child uh, or an adult child will come to court to support the parent and want to give evidence. And that's always a particularly sad situation because a judge is having to make a decision about whether to hear from that witness or not. And there will be effectively giving evidence against their other parent. So it's an incredibly difficult situation. And with the referendum now, of course, the children have a right to have their views and their wishes heard and their voice heard. And so you then have to decide about the mechanism of how that's done, because generally speaking, I don't think it's appropriate that children would come into court and give evidence in that way. And yet they're most likely to be the witness, aren't they? Absolutely. And the impact of the violence on on children, it's one of the saddest things about it is because it, it impacts on children to such a degree. And yes, very often the best witness that could be called in this case would be a child of... Have you seen that happen? I have seen a situation where an adult child has given evidence and I have seen a situation where minor children have sought to give evidence. 
I've also seen a situation where reports that children have made to social workers oh, and yeah. to Gardaí, that the social workers and the Gardaí would give an account of what that child has said to them. So yes, certainly there are mechanisms whereby a child's voice can be heard in that. But I think we need to be careful about how that is done because certainly, you know, family courts are not really the place for children to be and and to be giving evidence. I often hear people say, now it's more to do with separation and divorce proceedings, that the whole court system is just grossly unsuited to sorting out these kind of problems. Would you say that's true as well for domestic violence or... Does it have to be a court proceeding? I think, you know, in certain situations, the level of protection you require is for that person to be removed from the family home. There is a danger to you or to your children if they're to remain. That will have to involve a court process if somebody is an owner or co-owner of a house. And yes, in terms of where you're co-parenting and you have a child together and there is access arrangements and you're going to have to interact with that person and there may have been violence, you may have to come to court and get a safety order. So yes, I think it's unavoidable that there's some interaction with the court proceedings. But I do think we can look at ways to address that in a way which is more sensitive and more child friendly. I have a situation where I'll routinely be representing clients who will come to court and will be sitting in the waiting area and will be looking at the person that they are making an accusation about. And that can be incredibly intimidating for somebody who's already very fearful and is already sort of dreading the thought of having to go in front of a judge and talk about something that is very difficult for them to talk about. A lot of people, that clients that I have, finding themselves at the door of a court is the end of a very long road. For them to come to the point where they will go in front of a judge and tell their story and seek the protection. It's often at the end of, of having endured a, a very long history of violence. So it, do it they be- feel, do they, and I know this will sound perverse, but do they feel a kind of shame, you know, that they allowed this to happen to themselves? I, I think undoubtedly a lot of people will feel it's very difficult to have to go in front of a judge and tell such private details Certainly, I have clients that would blame themselves and perhaps partly because of the level of control and coercion there can be in a relationship like that, but also in a situation where they may have children, they may feel, you know, that they should have left earlier or they should have come to court earlier. I think one of the saddest cases that I ever had, and obviously I won't give any mm-hmm. great details because these are in camera, was a, a woman in her 70s coming to court. And certainly the history she gave me is it was a history of over 30 years of violence. She just said, I never thought at this age of my life I would find myself having to come to court mm-hmm. and look for an order like this. And I suppose on a personal and a human level, you know, that's incredibly sad to see. But yes, I think it takes a lot of courage for people to come to the point where they're going to come and seek a court order. Um, And and this is just now your opinion on, on what you see. Is it normally that the violence is between the adults or would it normally be that if whoever is inflicting the violence, be it the, the man or the woman, they're also being violent with the children? It absolutely depends on each particular case. But as I said, I do do childcare law as well. And 
unfortunately, you know, domestic violence is a factor that leads to Tuesland to the Child and Family Agency intervening. And it can be a situation where there is violence being perpetrated on children. And it can be a situation where somebody who is being violent to their partner would also be violent to children. I wish I could say that that was unusual, but it's not. I suppose there's no one size solution, mm. but certainly I would have clients who would disclose violence towards them and violence having been perpetrated on their children. Yes, undoubtedly, that would be a feature of cases. And I'd imagine you'd say what you see is the tip of the iceberg, that it's probably way more widespread than what actually ends up being in the court. I think it probably is. And also, I think there are certain categories of people that can't even come to court. So, for example, in order to get a safety order, which I suppose is the minimum level of protection that the the court can give by way of an order, you have to have cohabited with the person or have a child with them. And I suppose that ignores a whole category of people who may be in a relationship with somebody but may not have cohabited with them. And you would see that particularly in respect of younger people. So, for example, you might have people from 15 to 25 or 15 to 30 who might be still living in the family home with their parents, but are in an intimate relationship with somebody, are in a long-term relationship with somebody, and they are, there is violence in that relationship. They are not able to even come to seek a, a safety order or a protection order because they haven't cohabited with the partner. What I also see in circumstances very routinely is that where a And we'll just give the example of a woman and her ex-partner. And I'm not saying that there aren't men that experience violence. I represent them all the time. But we'll just give that as an example. And they, that woman has a safety order herself. And there is a situation where children have to be collected for access and dropped back from access. And her parents will be involved in doing that. And they will go and meet him and drop off the children and collect the children. And there can be intimidation. There can be threats of violence. There can even be violence in in, in those circumstances. And those parents can't, her parents can't seek a safety order. In other jurisdictions, you could get a restraining order against somebody. But in this jurisdiction, we don't have that. So I do see categories of people, for example, you know, To give the example of her, if she has a sister or a brother or parents that might be there supporting her, they themselves could be receiving intimidation, receiving violence. Now, obviously, it's a crime to to assault anybody and you can always report matters to the Gardaí. But I suppose we have to acknowledge, and I think it's a societal issue, if somebody assaults a stranger on the street... That's very obviously considered a criminal offence. But where people are in personal, interpersonal relationships, where people are in familial relationships, there still is, I think, a little bit too much of this attitude that it's just a domestic, it's just a private matter, it's just something that happens, you know, behind closed doors, where in fact... You know, domestic violence and the impact of that on our society, the impact of, of that on, you know, women and men across the country, the impact on children growing up in these relationships is absolutely huge. And we, in recent years, the Irish state has become very good at recognising about child abuse, recognising the dangers to children of physical abuse, of emotional abuse, of sexual abuse, of understanding the need for there to be children's first principles and mandatory reporting and that we take steps to recognise this because we recognise what a societal evil that is. 
But at the same time, we don't seem to yes, have arrived at a stage where we recognise how serious domestic violence is, how serious an impact that it can have. We don't seem to link domestic violence relationships with homicide. So, for example, in terms of, of women that die in this country, women die primarily at the hands of men that they know, people that they were in a relationship with, people they are in a relationship with. And You know, we need to recognise in terms of addressing that and in terms of preventing that, the real need to address domestic violence. We've had in recent months, and I say this in a very personal capacity, and I say this with a degree of sensitivity, we've had two situations where there's been um, murder-suicides. And a lot of talk has gone on about the respectability of the men involved and issues around mental health. And I think that's, and again, it's a very personal opinion, but I think that's very dangerous because firstly, I think in terms of mental health, people are far more of a risk to themselves than anybody else with a mental health difficulty. Mental health doesn't lead to you, you know, attacking family members. But we don't ask the question as to whether there has been a previous history of domestic violence. We don't ask the question as to whether there may have been episodes of controlling behaviour or coercive behaviour. A situation where you decide that you're going to end your life, but you decide that the people around you can't survive without you, I have to say strikes me to be a very controlling situation. It's the ultimate control. And so I think it's very important that we ask questions about the impact of domestic violence and, and I suppose the end result and the worst results. That and that and I know exactly what you mean about the sensitivity when those cases happen. You know, people are so shocked and it's the families are left to pick up the pieces and all those articles about what a great man he was. But I did look at those photographs and you think that didn't just happen out of the blue. Well, Look, as I said, I'm, I am not in yeah. any way suggesting that I, I'm an expert on the relationships of other people. But I do think it's important to recognise that in situations where female homicide takes place, there can often be a history of domestic violence. And that's why offering legal redress to people who find themselves in that situation and also offering them support by way of refuge, by way of access to support services, by way of access to supports that can help people in that situation is so important. It's not about judging any particular case, but it's about recognising. Look, we recognise in terms of children, the importance of protecting children in that situation, the importance of there being steps that people take mandatory reporting of And of, as Aaron Pitsy was saying, because those children could go on to be perpetrators and victims themselves. So it's, absolutely you know, it's preventing a future problem too if you Abs- can sort absolutely. it out now. 
Katie, I think we have to leave it there. Thank you so much for talking to me this morning. That's Katie Dawson, a barrister specialising in family law. And if you're worried about someone, if you think they're in a domestic abuse situation, you can go to whatwouldyoudo.ie. There's lots of advice there. And that's a message from CUSC, the National Office for the Prevention of Domestic, Sexual and Gender-Based Violence, supported by Newstalk 106 to 108. My next guest is Jim Sheehan. He's a family therapist and was director of family therapy training with the Matter Hospital for many years. Now, at the top of the show, Jim, we talked to Erin Pitsy, founder of the first domestic violence shelter in this part of the world. And she has views which were controversial back in the 70s when she first aired them and still are today, which is that while there are many normal, functional, completely innocent victims of domestic violence, many victims come from violent backgrounds and are themselves violent. Now, what do you make of her theory? I think that that's largely speaking correct that many, both many violent relationships in them, you have both men and women, an abuser and somebody who is a victim, both of whom have come from very troubled, problematic backgrounds. And many abusers, for example, have come from from backgrounds where there's been a, a lot of neglect and possible physical abuse of them, just as their as their victim partners have been too. So they both come into adult life and relationships with a very insecure sense of the world. So they feel the relationship is like a kind of a some type of safety net that gives them some minimal sense of security. So hence, when she talked about the what happens for, uh, say, for example, for an abuser whose partner is threatening to leave, that's the moment when the, the man often feels like threatened to the point that he's going to be killed. So it's like for him an emotional death, almost, the idea of the partner leaving, you know. And what can you do in those relationships? Because, again, the, the lawyers and the people who work in this area will see relationships where, you know, often it is the woman, but we know it can be the man yeah. too, yeah. leaves but goes back, gets the barring order, but goes back. And almost an addictive nature to the relationship. Yeah, and I think that you have to remember that people who are caught in that situation are living in the context of different ways of thinking about what they should do. For example, there's one bit of them that knows what's happening in the relationship is wrong and that they really should get out for their own protection, their own safety. Another bit of the world they live in tells them that to be a good mother, you should keep your children connected to their father. And of course, the culture puts a lot of guilt on people still, sometimes for ending a relationship. So there's a whole lot of different ways of thinking, some of them contradictory, that the person is responding to. So if when you say, what can you do? I think the most important thing is to be available to support them. And that's what therapists do. Therapists actually do a lot of things in therapy that are the total opposite of what the partner is doing in the relationship. What do you mean? Well, what I mean is that their views are validated instead of being negated. Their whole desires are understood and accepted rather than being told that they're trivial and not and, and not worth it. They're told that as a human being by the therapist that they're worthwhile and they do that in the context of the way they relate to the person, whereas often an abuser will tell somebody, uh, a victim, that they're worthless and hopeless. And of course, in verbal abuse and coercive kind of relationships, you often have an awful lot of things like name calling, insults, undermining. 
So anytime the person's confidence takes a little rise, the, the person comes in to sweep that rise away and to kind of bring them to their knees again. And will you talk to me a little bit about that coercive control? And this is the storyline that was in The Archers, which mm, we, we were mm, discussing. Mm, it mm, got mm, violent mm. in the end. Yeah. But mostly we were witness to this very slow build up where Rob, the husband, gradually isolated Helen from her family, from her friends, reading her text messages, yeah. um, control the money, yeah. messing with her head about what yeah. food he did or didn't like. Just gradually turned this woman from being an independent person until she actually thought she was mentally ill herself. Sure. You see, I think that to understand this, when I listened to the clip, one of the things that was really clear is that it puts the lie to the fact that violence erupts irrationally puts the lie to the fact that it just comes out of nowhere and it's unpredictable. In fact, a lot of violent acts are part of what I would call a way of thinking. And there are certain theories, there's a theory of violence now called virtuous violence theory, which says that in fact people who act violently do so because they think that they ought to do so and that they should do so in a certain context and in a certain way. And very often, for example, males who are violent to females are actually using violence in a relationship to regulate it and to bring about a way of being between themselves and their partner that they feel is right. And that's the thing that, of course, is being challenged at this point and being challenged over the last 30, 40 years. And I think that when you get onto the cusp of change, when these kind of norms that we might now say are associated with patriarchy, you know, which always gets bad press because of the cultural position that we speak from, when we become more aware that our own evolving norms about how we should be in male-female relationships are actually also culturally prescribed, we might be better able to understand the phenomenon of violence and what's happening within it. Yeah, so do you mean, say, that maybe 40 years ago, and even when Erin Pitsy was setting up yes. the shelter, she was considered a homewrecker and it would be very much have been considered that that was marital business. That was yes. what went on yes. inside a relationship was nobody else's business. That's right. Do you think there's still a bit of a view around that today? There certainly is. Absolutely is. And you wouldn't, I wouldn't expect it to be any different because we've lived with those views for so long and they're there for so long that you won't expect views like that about the privacy of family life to be wiped away in an instant. In the archers, and I know we keep going back yeah. to it, but it was just so well done. Kirsty Helen's friend yeah. is the only one that sees that there's something really weird going mm, on mm. here. So she gives her a mobile phone and tries to encourage her to talk. Yeah. But at the start, when she tries to do that, mm. Helen attacks her and says, what are you saying? And it's none yeah. of your business. Yeah. And he's my husband. He loves me and yeah. I love him and stay yeah. out of it. Yeah. Would that be a common reaction? Uh, absolutely. And you must remember the first reaction there is that the person who is being abused from the perspective we take now on the outside often is inscribed in the way of thinking that the other person is involved in too. So they actually do believe sometimes that they deserved it. They do believe that it was the correct thing to happen, do you know? Mm. And that's what I meant, for example, by the, the parties often both being involved in this engagement with violence. That's part of this kind of morally motivated regulation of a social relationship. 
And it's only when she becomes aware of other ideas and people say to her things like, you know, human beings don't have to live like this. You know, it can be different. And somebody befriends them and says, look, you know, if you're really worried, here's a phone and read that book or read that pamphlet. Then they begin to question more. But initially, the reality is that people go on in these situations often because they actually do believe that it's okay. You know, the impact on children must be extraordinary. The impact is extraordinary, and there's mounting evidence of the of the uh, impact of witnessing uh, domestic violence on children right throughout their lifespan. You know, right through to question of being ready for school, academic achievement, capacity to maintain trusting relationships with peers, capacity to make and maintain romantic relationships mental health adjustment in adulthood. There's a whole range of things that seem to be impacted with that. But equally, there's a lot of research now that's beginning to try and say, well, now, what are the protective factors that people can do, can put into place, even when there's exposure to violence in children? And one of the studies I read from 2015 was saying that one of the things that if you're involved in a, a in a violent relationship and your children are to some degree exposed to it, and, you know, they can expose by hearing it, mm-hmm. not just always by seeing it, that one of the things that seems to have some protectiveness is the capacity of the one of the parents, at least, to keep child routines in place. In other words, to keep things like sleeping and feeding routines in place, to keep regularity about child management practices for poor behaviour, consistency around discipline and so on. And that some of those things seem to have some protective impact for children who are exposed to violence, except when the exposure is very high. Mm. This issue of gender equality, are men victims just as much as women? Are women just as violent as men? And that was something that Aaron Pitsy argues quite strongly for as well. Now, what's your understanding of the evidence around that? Well, now, you know, again, I might be wrong about this. She may be quite right. But from my reading of the of the research that's there in, in within the last year, there's really some of the meta studies are saying, well, actually, you can't really say whether there's equality really between the genders with respect to the perpetration of, say, physical violence with an intimate partner. It's very hard to, you know, where would you get that evidence from? Research in this area is quite difficult to get at. And also you're often, a lot of the studies are depending upon the reports of one person and not the involvement of the other person. What's your gut? My gut feeling is that, of course, there is actually more male violence to females. But the research is also saying that women are also participating in violence. Can I point out a few of the things that a very interesting study by people called Hamburger and Larson, who did a study of all the literature in this area from between the years of 2000 and uh, 2002 to 2013, And they pointed out a couple of things that from there, looking at the whole range of studies, they said that it's clear that both men and and women participate in physical and emotional abuse in what's now called intimate partner violence. The term domestic violence seems to be going out of use. They also say that women's violence appears to be more in response to violence initiated against them, that they don't appear in the literature in clinical studies to be the people who initiate violence, but they can be just as violent in response. That's the second thing. And then they said that the type and quality of emotional abuse 
tends to differ between the sexes, with men, for example, using tactics that threaten life or inhibit their partner's autonomy. So that's what the pattern that men have. And women tend to use the tactics of yelling and shouting at their partners. And one more thing that they were saying that when they look at these range of clinical studies and look at the pattern of violence that's reported in them, the studies suggest that women are generally more highly victimised, more injured and more fearful than the men in these clinical samples. Okay, so that's Jim Sheehan, family therapist and director of family therapy training, a former director of family therapy training with the Matter Hospital for many years. Jim, thanks a million for uh, sharing that with us today. If you're worried about someone, uh, you can go to whatwouldyoudo.ie. There's lots of advice there. And that's a message from CUSC, the National Office for the Prevention of Domestic, Sexual and Gender-Based Violence, supported by News Talk 106 to 108. That's it for today. Many thanks to Aaron Pitsy, Katie Dawson and Jim Sheehan, Aidan McKelvey Research, Stephen Jordan Produced. And thank Thank you for listening.